going to read uh, scripture. It's James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and then we're going to get to the book of Acts. So this is what James uh, writes to us. Is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you for the victory that is in Jesus that uh, was won uh, 2,000 years ago when you conquered sin, the grave, and death. And we celebrate that this morning that our victory is found in you. Lord, help us to be reminded that our home is not here, but we're simply pilgrims on a journey passing through here, and that you have a place prepared for us in heaven someday, and we look forward to that. Lord, in the meantime, we pray that we would be faithful to what you have called us to do, and so we thank you that we can pray for one another, pray for the needs in our own congregation Lord, we do pray for the situation in the Middle East. We pray for 200 hostages that are kept captive, and we pray for their safety and their soon release. And we pray for the quick resolution to the war there. And we think of what's going on in Ukraine and many other places in the world. Lord, we're reminded again that we will not have true peace until the Prince of Peace returns someday and rules and reigns on this world on this planet. So, Lord, we thank you, and uh, we rejoice in all that you will do in our lives this morning. May we um, be uh, open to your word today, and we ask that your spirit would speak to us, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if anybody is uh, older like me or remembers a uh, television show by CBS about 30 years ago. It was entitled, uh, Touched by an Angel. Roma Downey was the star of that show. She was the angel Monica. It was on CBS for a number of years. Della Reese was her supervisor by the name of Tess. Ran for nine seasons on CBS. And the the theme of the story uh, is that uh, the angel was given an assignment to go speak to people who were at some sort of crossroad in their lives. And it became uh, a very, very popular show Uh, during its nine-season run. Well, I don't know this morning if uh, people in America believe in angels. The polls that I've read said 70% of Americans believe that angels are real and angels exist. And of course, to believe the Bible, to believe God's Word, is to believe in angels. Just think of the story of the Incarnation, that angels played a a specific role, appearing to Mary, appearing to Joseph, appearing to the shepherds out in the field to announce the birth of the Messiah. And so angels are real. And this morning we're going to think about a passage from Acts chapter 12 entitled, Touched by an Angel, and it's the story of Peter. So let's uh, look at our outline this morning, and then we're going to look at some uh, application points and then we're going to close in just a little different way this morning. We're going to, part of the application of our sermon, uh, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And uh, so that's kind of where, where we're headed. 
And so let's uh, look at Acts chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to run through our outline here. And the first part of the outline is the word persecution. It's a word that shows up often in the book of Acts in our outline, because as we know, persecution in the church started with uh, Stephen being the first martyr. That was uh, back earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is murdered, Stephen is martyred, and then Saul comes on the scene, and in Acts chapter 8, a great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and Saul is going after Christians, and he's, he's uh, putting them to death, he's just putting them in prison, and this persecution spreads during the first century, and, and now we know that um, Saul has been converted to Christianity, so another person takes up the mantle of persecution. His name is King Herod, and we read about him in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, who is King Herod? The name Herod is simply a title. Uh, it's, it's a title like Caesar. Uh, it's, a, it's a title like the Pope. So we could say the Pope, but we want to say, well, which Pope? And that's what Herod is. Herod is simply a title. Uh, Israelites were under the Roman Empire rule, but they allowed them to have their own king, their own government, and some say it was a little bit of a puppet government. But this is King Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great, that when it came on the scene about this uh, king that was born in Bethlehem, what did Herod the Great do? He issued an edict. Every baby boy two years and under in Bethlehem is to be killed. Herod the Great was not a very um, kind man. And I'll say his grandson, who is Herod Agrippa I, was not very kind either. In fact, some uh, describe him as vain, conniving, cruel, and murderous. And so Herod Agrippa begins and continues to persecute the church. And what does he do? Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So he arrests James. Remember, James and um, his brother were the sons of thunder. And uh, he puts them in prison and he executes them. And furthermore... It says, when he saw that this met approval among the Jews, so he's trying to appease the Jews, and the Herods were under great pressure to keep the peace and not have a lot of commotion, otherwise the iron grip of Rome would come down on them. And so he found out that this was popular. So what does he do? <clears throat> he proceeds to seize or arrest Peter also. So James was arrested. James is put in prison, James is executed, now he arrests Peter, and Peter's in prison, and this is the third time that Peter's been in prison in the book of Acts. He was put in prison in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, here we are in Acts chapter 10, or 12 rather, and Peter is back in prison. Now notice Dr. Luke gives us some context here of the calendar. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. <clears throat> After arresting him... He put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended him to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. 
So this happens during holiday time. If you go to Leviticus chapter 23, you understand that there were seven Jewish holidays that God gave to the nation of Israel that they were to celebrate. Kind of like our holidays that we have. We have seven or eight holidays that we we celebrate. And so here it is during the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So uh, the holiday of Passover uh, would happen, and that would be day number one. The next seven days would be another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it'd be eight days of celebration. And so King Herod doesn't want to have a trial. He doesn't want to perhaps have an execution during a holiday time. And so his plan is, as soon as that Jewish holiday is over, that eight-day celebration of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says he will have a public trial for Peter. And I have to tell you, just uh, reading between the lines here, that um, uh, the chances of, of Peter being released and found innocent are probably slim and none. I mean, James has already been put to death. That's what Peter's facing. Peter's facing execution. And Peter is facing, apart from divine intervention, Peter's facing a death sentence. He's a relative high-profile prisoner. It says that the, the King Herod Agrippa has four groups of soldiers, four each, that are watching him on a rotating basis. We'll read later on in the text, two are chained to him and two are guarding the door. And they, they are 16 that rotate, guarding Peter. Well, that's the persecution. And uh, let's look at the next part of our text here. It is found in verse 5. And as we study our passage this morning, and uh, when you study the Bible, it's interesting to kind of come up with a key verse. And I think here's the key verse in Acts chapter 12. It's earnest prayer. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a message entitled, Do You Believe in Miracles? Because we read about some miracles that took place earlier in the book of Acts. The question this morning might be, do we believe in prayer? Does prayer really impact? Does prayer make a difference? And let's look at the earnest prayer, which is, was taken place by the church in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The, Another translation says they were praying without ceasing. So Peter's facing prison, his third time in prison. He's facing almost absolute exile or or execution. And the church is praying. They're earnestly praying, intercessory prayer. And what happens? Well, the storyline goes on. Uh, The persecution, the earnest prayer, and the prison break. Verse 6 is the night before Herod was to bring him to trial. So this is the night before the end of the festival, that eight-day celebration period. And Herod's plan is then to have this public trial and execute Peter. It says, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And now we read about a series of miracles. There's four of them. Here's the first one. An angel appears in the prison. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Here's Peter sleeping the night before he was probably going to go on trial and face execution. He wakes Peter up and he says, quick, get up. 
And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Miracle number two. Angel shows up, wakes up Peter. Peter's chained to two guards. The chains fall off. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what was the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's a little confused about what's going on here. He was in a deep sleep. He's had several visions in his life that God spoke to him through a vision. So he's not really sure, is this really happening or is this some sort of vision that God sent me? Here's miracle number three in verse 10. They pass the first and second guards. So they walk right past those four guards. Some people say they might have been sleeping. I doubt if they were sleeping because the, the punishment for losing a prisoner is your life. And so somehow they miraculously walk past those four guards And here's miracle number four. They come to the iron gate leading to the city. This is in Jerusalem. It opened for them by itself. They're walking up to this locked gate. It simply opens wide up. And what happens? It says that uh, Peter and his angel walked through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left. The angel disappears. And uh, we read in verse 11, it says, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So Peter realizes that this is, this is real and that God has worked a miracle and God has delivered me from prison. And uh, Peter walks right through that gate, and now he's in the city of Jerusalem. It's probably late at night, and he's thinking, where should I go? And he ends up going to a prayer meeting. He ends up going to the place of prayer where that church was praying for him. So uh, let's uh, look at uh, point number four, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door, verse 12. Uh, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called John Mark, where many people had gathered. What were they doing? They were praying. They were praying for Peter's release. And I happen to know in the the early church that the church met in homes. It wasn't until the third century that the church started to meet in church buildings like we are meeting in today. And so here's the church meeting in homes, and Peter decides, and it's probably late at night, we don't know the the context here of the exact exact time, but um, Peter decides to go to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And he gets there in verse 13, and it says, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. It's a fascinating portion of scripture. It says when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. She's so excited that that Peter's there that she forgets to open the door, runs back into the prayer meeting, Peter's at the door. And how does the church who's praying for Peter's release respond? You're crazy. (laughs) Peter's in prison. 
And when she insists it's him, they say, second time, they say, well, maybe it's his angel, but it can't be Peter. Uh, and let's, let's read it in uh, uh, verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. And she, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He didn't want to draw a lot of attention because maybe they're going to come after him and put him back in prison. So he has them quiet down. He tells them what happened. And then he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter says, I want you to tell the the head of the church of Jerusalem, James, about what happened. I want you to tell the rest of the believers. And then it says, then he left for another place. The Bible doesn't tell us where he goes. In fact, as we transition now toward through the rest of the book of Acts, Peter begins to um, go by the wayside as far as uh, being mentioned and the Apostle Paul begins to become the prominent character in the second half of the book of Acts. Well, look what happens as the story concludes. Next morning, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. <laughs> the next morning, they're looking around and they're like, where did he go? And what happened to Peter? And they're trying to figure this out. This is after Herod had a thorough search made for him. So they sent out a search team, didn't find Peter. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they all be executed. Uh, those 16 guards assigned to guard Peter were all put to death because of Peter's escape. Not just the four that were on duty when he escaped, but he puts to death all of those 16 guards. Well, that's the story of uh, the Apostle Peter and um, this miraculous escape that um, God delivered him from prison. And uh, later on, we know that uh, Peter did end up losing his life, as most of the apostles did, as, as a martyr for the kingdom. And uh, history tells us that Peter was crucified on a cross, just like Jesus was, and that when that happened, um, Peter did not think he would be worthy of being crucified in the same manner that Jesus was, so it was an upside-down cross. And Peter eventually gave his life for the kingdom. Well, this morning, we just want to think about some life lessons from uh, this story in Acts chapter 12, and they all center around uh, that key verse, Acts chapter 12, verse 5, the church was earnestly praying. So let's look at life lesson number one, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll think about this first lesson here. Here it is. Our prayer life often becomes routine and mundane, until a crisis occurs. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. Uh, I think that's the pattern for a lot of us. 
that our prayer life can become rather boring, routine, mundane, or even non-existent until a crisis comes. Now, what does God want us to do in crisis? God wants us to pray, doesn't he? And that's what James 5 says. Is anybody in trouble? (laughs) What's our first response? That first response should be prayer. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help, what? In a time of trouble. So God does want us to come to him in prayer when a crisis occurs. But I don't think that's the only time God wants to hear from us. Do you ever have a a, a friend, an acquaintance in your life, and you you never hear from them except when they need something? (laughs) And when when they need something, then you, then you get contacted by them, and uh, that's not a very uh, very good relationship, not a very close relationship. And so, yes, we need to turn to God in times of crisis. But why do we wait until a crisis comes to be serious about prayer? Uh, the message of Scripture is that we need to develop a regular pattern of prayer. Ephesians six says, "Praying always." 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We see examples in the Old Testament of of Daniel, and Daniel prayed three times a day, even when they made a law against it, and he still continued to pray. Uh, We know that the the Jewish um, calendar and the order of the day was that they had three prayer times every day. You know, the religion of Islam has uh, five prayer times a day. Five calls to prayer where uh, those that are in the religion of Islam uh, hit their knees and turn toward Mecca and, and pray. And um, a number of years ago, my, my folks spent a, a year in, in the Middle East, and I remember they were in the United Arab Emirates, and I'm talking to them on the phone, and all of a sudden I hear this music in the background. I'm like, well, what's, what's that uh, music about? And well, that's the call to prayer, five times a day. And so it's interesting, our our prayer life often becomes mundane and routine until until a crisis happens. And so we need to develop a regular prayer life, and uh, God speaks to us through his word, and we speak to him through prayer. That's that's the relationship. Well, here's the second uh, life lesson is this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's straight out of our scripture reading this morning, James chapter uh, 5. As we read, James writes, "The, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And he gives the example of Elijah, who was a man just like us. Yes, he was a prophet, but he was just like us. And we know the story of Elijah, that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a, uh, until God spoke. And for three and a half years, there was a drought and a famine. And that famine and drought wasn't broken until what? Until Elijah, Elijah prayed there in 1 Kings chapter 17. And so we need to be reminded that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And we have the privilege at any time, to speak directly to the creator of the universe. And what an awesome privilege that is. Kent and Barbara Hughes wrote a book about 20 years ago or so entitled Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. 
And uh, they wrote a chapter about uh, prayer, that success in ministry is, is praying. And he gives this illustration, and I'm going to read it for you this morning just because I think it's appropriate. Some years ago, a young man approached the foreman of a logging crew and asked for a job. That depends, replied the foreman. Let's see you fell this tree. So the young man stepped forward and skillfully felled a great tree, impressed the foreman, exclaimed, you start on Monday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday rolled by. And Thursday afternoon, the foreman approached the young man and said, you can pick up your paycheck on the way out today. Startled, he replied, I thought you paid on Friday. Normally we do, but we're letting you go today because you've fallen behind. Our daily felling charts show that you've dropped from first place on Monday to last on Wednesday. But I'm a hard worker, the young man objected. I arrive first and leave last. I even have worked through my coffee breaks. The foreman, sensing the young man's integrity, thought for a moment and then asked him, have you been sharpening your axe? The young man replied, I've been working too hard to take the time. What an obvious mistake, yet the fact is that many of us and God's servants fall, fail in their appointed tasks because they don't take time to sharpen their lives in prayer. And so prayer is crucial. Uh, Jim Cimbala in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, uh, pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, writes, I discovered an astonishing truth that God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. So the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We saw that in the book of Acts, that it was through the prayers of the church, the passionate praying of the church, that that God um, used those prayers to make a difference and rescue Peter from prison. Well, lastly this morning, a third life lesson it has to do with some uh, uh, suggestions about our, our prayer life and what our prayer life needs to be characterized by. And I'm going to give you four words here quickly. They all start with the letter P. Here's the first one. Our prayer life needs to be passionate, passionate. Acts 12.5, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Nothing like a crisis to jump our prayer lives. We need to be passionate in prayer. We need to be passionate in prayer about our children, about our grandchildren. We need to be passionate in prayer about our church and our community and our country. The effectual, fervent prayer. The, the word there, uh, Greek word is zealous, zealot. To, to be a zealot, to be passionate in prayer. Our prayer life needs to be passionate. Colossians 4.12 talks about a young man by the name of Epaphras. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, Epaphras, a servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently in prayer for you, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And so God wants our prayers to be passionate. God wants our prayers, secondly, to be persistent, to be persistent. Oftentimes, uh, when we don't see results immediately, that uh, we think that God doesn't care, or God isn't listening, and uh, we kind of cross that off our list or give up in our prayer for that particular situation. But that's not what Jesus says when he talks about prayer. 
He says we need to be persistent in our prayers. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And the, the context, the verbiage of those verbs is keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. The story is told of George Mueller, that great man of the faith who started those orphanages in England, and George Mueller was a man of prayer. Two different ways to handle prayer. Some people make their requests be known publicly so others can pray. George Mueller never did. He never made public appeals for anything. He simply got down on his knees and prayed. And there's many miraculous stories of that orphanage there in England where uh, they don't have any food to feed the kids and they're praying and a, a bread truck breaks down in front of the orphanage and God supplies through uh, many fascinating stories. But it says that George Mueller had five friends and he was praying for his five friends to come to faith in Christ. The story is told that the first one came to Christ five years after George Mueller began praying. The second one came to Christ 10 years after George Mueller started praying. The third one, 25 years. The fourth one, four, can you imagine praying for 40 years for one person to come to Christ? The fifth person came to Christ after George Mueller died. We realize that sometimes maybe we don't live to see the full impact and result of our prayers, but our prayer life needs to be passionate. It needs to be persistent. It needs to be purposeful. It needs to be purposeful. In other words, it needs to be specific. Um, so we can pray, Lord, bless, bless our country, bless the world, bless all the missionaries, but prayer that is focused prayer, specific prayer is how God wants us to pray. And so our prayers need to be passionate. They need to be persistent. They need to be purposeful. But lastly, they need to be pliable. They need to be pliable. What do we mean by pliable? Well, we need to understand um, how prayer works, and there's a mystery to prayer. Uh, we've just read in Acts chapter 12 that two uh, apostles were in prison. James was in prison, and Peter was in prison. Although the text doesn't say specifically that the church was praying for James, I, I can only imagine that they probably were if they were praying for Peter. And James is executed and Peter is released. There's a certain mystery to, to prayer and understanding God's will. And so Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so someone has said prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. We know from the prayer of Jesus in Luke chapter 22 at his most um, key moment right before the cross, and here he is praying passionately. He's in, he's in anguish. He's, uh, Luke twenty two forty four 44, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And what was his prayer? 
Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so there's the, there's the challenge of, of prayer that uh, our prayers need to be pliable. And yes, God wants us to passionately pray and ask specifically, but ultimately we say, God, you're sovereign. Ultimately, may your will be done. So E. Stanley Jones says, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but prayer is aligning my will to the will of God. And so the church was earnestly praying. And if there's ever a time in our country, our nation, in the world that the church needs to be praying, it is, it is now. And let me draw attention to an insert you have in your um, bulletin. And uh, you can fill this out today or in uh, the days to come. And uh, there's three different boxes. And realizing that some, uh, some prayer requests are highly uh, maybe personal and confidential, that uh, you can have a prayer request go just to, to me or to our church leadership, our church board, or if you want the entire church to be praying, then there's a spot for that as well. So uh, these will regularly show up and be available to you. And one of the things we want to do is to develop a culture of prayer because prayer is powerful and prayer makes a difference. And uh, we need to be people characterized by prayer. Thank you that we have this awesome uh, privilege of prayer. And Lord, I must confess that oftentimes prayer is not my first response. Oftentimes it's uh, my last resort. Lord, I uh, pray that you would help us to be uh, people that is characterized by prayer and that we would simply follow your direct instruction in God's word to pray for one another. And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have of doing that this morning. And Lord, I know that uh, just even in our church family that there are so many needs and so many burdens and we need to not just talk about prayer, but we need to pray. So...